Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You ready? Ready. <laughs> Freddy. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. With me, as per, my good friend Matthew. Hello. He came back again. Again and again. It was like a rash. <laughs> nice. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Two portions. Two whole portions. In Mississauga, Ontario in 1973 and early 1974, the discoveries of the murdered bodies of two young women, Constance Dickey, 19, and Nita Novak, 18, only months apart, left the community shaken. Both women, it appeared, had been abducted, sexually assaulted, then murdered and dumped by a yet unknown killer. On August 19, 1974, after being sexually assaulted and left for dead, a 16-year-old girl, Julia Sheldon, identified a 24-year-old married father of two named Henry Robert Williams as the man who'd brutally assaulted her. It soon became clear that Williams had also committed the two previous murders. This is Dark Poutine, episode 184, Monster in Mississauga, the murders of Candace Dickey and Nita Novak. On September 2nd, 1973, Constance Ann Dickey came to Mississauga from her home in Prescott, Ontario, to stay with her sister and brother-in-law, the Fletchers, who lived near the Arendelle College campus, part of the University of Toronto in Mississauga. Constance was enrolled at the college for her first year in a science program. Mervyn, Constance's father, was a longtime journalist for a Prescott paper. Constance was a smart girl and wanted to be a nurse. She had high hopes for her future, and so did her family. Constance was also quiet, and the youngest of the five children in the Dickey family. She was described by her former high school principal as a fine young lady. She was staying with her sister only temporarily, and was supposed to move into the residence at the Credit Valley School of Nursing on September 11th, the day she disappeared. Constance was last seen in a bank that afternoon. She was supposed to meet her sister and brother-in-law, Jack, later on at the campus. Jack had some of Constance's personal items to help her settle into the residence. The Fletchers waited for Constance for more than two hours. 
It was unlike her to be that late for anything, especially something she wanted so badly. The couple returned home, and Jack Fletcher called the Metropolitan Toronto Police later that evening. Police began looking for Constance right away. They didn't find her. Five days later, on Sunday, September 16, 1973, two police constables searching the area near what is now parking lot 4 at Arendale College discovered Constance Dickey's badly battered nude body. It had been discarded in a thicket. Police cordoned off the area to secure the girl's body and search for clues. An autopsy revealed that Constance had been raped by someone who'd then strangled her. Detectives did what they could to determine the girl's final movements, but everything came up a dead end after she'd been seen in the bank. Sweeping with a metal detector, police investigators turned up what they presumed was the murder weapon, but they did not disclose what it was exactly, saying it was holdback evidence that it would help them identify the murderer if they ever captured him. There were very few leads other than they thought someone might have picked up Constance who may have been hitchhiking to her next appointment. Less than a month later, another girl, 18-year-old Nita Novak, went missing. Nita, who was a student at Arendale Secondary School, had been walking home on the afternoon of October 5th. The school was only a mile from her residence, and she'd done the walk on her own for years. But when Nita did not come home for dinner that evening, her family was concerned. They reported her missing after calling around to find out whether anyone had seen the young girl. No one had. The two crimes... Nita Novak's disappearance and Constance Dickey's murder were quickly connected in the press and were often mentioned in the same articles. A Canadian press article published on October 12th spoke of rewards in both cases. Quote, rewards totaling $9,000 have been offered for information on the slaying of an Arendale College student and the disappearance of a high school student missing since last Friday. A $3,000 reward was posted on Thursday by Mississauga police for information leading to the capture of the person who sexually assaulted and strangled Constance Dickey, 19, whose body was found September 16th on the Arendale College campus. The parents of Nita Novak, 18, of Mississauga, reported missing on October 5th, have offered $3,000 for information leading to the discovery of their daughter. The Mississauga Police Commission has offered a similar reward. There was no progress mentioned in either case for the rest of 1973. In March of 1974, Constance Dickey's dad, Mervyn, was awarded the paltry sum of $264 from the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board in his daughter's death. According to an Ottawa Citizen article, quote, The board awarded Mr. Dickey for compensation for funeral expenses, travel fare, and legal fees. The proceeds of a life insurance policy, $1,189, were deducted from his claim. End quote. I'm sure maybe I've seen this in the news before, but maybe didn't pay attention. Mm -hmm. And the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board. Yeah. Like it just suddenly occurred, like this is kind of the first time I've let it sink in. Yeah. That if somebody's a victim or a victim's family. Yes. The government gives them money. Yes. And just, and not judging anyone right, who, right, would, yeah. who would get it at all. I'm just kind because of like. Because there are things to pay for in this case, which is evidenced by that. Yeah, but it's sort of like. It is an odd thing. But why? Right? Like, like it's sort of like life is life and there's shitty things that happen. Mm -hmm. Right? Like if I got into a car accident, 
the government wouldn't give me money. Do you know what I mean? It's just, yeah. and I, I get it. I get like, there's, there's stuff to deal with, but like, God forbid if my husband got murdered, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I'd want to do like bureaucratic paperwork and try to get a couple hundred bucks from the government. In uh, the things that have happened to me was yeah. suggested that I could do that. Which yeah. I always thought was kind of weird. I'd never pursued it either. Yeah, I just, I mean, it, you know, maybe some people might need it. I just, it's, it's an interesting thing. I'm just, I'm just learning about it now. And yeah. I'm kind of like, okay, that's interesting. I mean, I would probably, if my husband was murdered and they caught the guy, I'd probably do a civil suit to try to clear him out of everything he has just for vengeance and give the money to charity. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was not until April 30, 1974, that there was news in Nita's disappearance. The 18-year-old student's badly decomposed body was found by a fisherman looking for worms along the Credit River near the Streetsville Cemetery. He'd looked underneath some old wood and found what was left of Nita Novak. Nita had been dumped at the end of a dirt road called a local lover's lane in the papers. Nita's body was in such a terrible state that she had to be identified by way of dental records. Police searched for clues using a metal detector along the banks of the nearby Credit River. They were hoping to find a murder weapon, presumably one similar to the one found in Constance Dickey's murder. Authorities decided against releasing the results of Nita's autopsy. It looked as though there may be a predator at work in Mississauga as now two young women, whose lives were just beginning, had been murdered there. Publicly, however, police were not admitting that the two murders might be connected. On August 16, 1974, Julie Sheldon, a 16-year-old student, was visiting Canada for the summer from Gosport in southern England. She'd been downtown in Toronto at the C&E for the day. According to Lee Meller's book, Cold North Killers, Julie hopped on the GO train at Exhibition Station, headed west toward Mississauga, getting off the train at Clarkson Station. Julia called the friend who'd agreed to pick her up at the station, but he was not answering his phone, so... As the bus drivers in the city were on strike at the time, Julia decided to thumb a ride. So, first of all, for people who don't know, CNE is the Canadian National Exhibition. Right. And the GO Train is the Government of Ontario train. Right. GO Train. Yeah. I'm feeling horrible for Julia already. I don't know what's going to happen to her. Mm. But I'm just, okay, the 16-year-old kid. Yeah. Right. From Gosport, little town. I've been there a few times, but mm-hmm. my mother-in-law lives near it. Yep. It's it's essentially right across from Portsmouth Harbor. Yeah. So uh, it, it, and it's not very big, right? No, no. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a naval base there. You know, and I'm just, I'm wondering, like, she's 16. I wonder if she, is she visiting family in Canada? She's having a great adventure. Yeah. She goes to the CNE. And I looked at, I looked this up, by the way. She, she had stuffed animals with her because she'd won some. Oh, did she? Yeah. I wonder if she watched the Hell Drivers. What are the Hell Drivers? It's like a, it's sort of like um, people driving stunt cars at oh, the CME. Oh, okay, yeah. And the Scottish World Festival Tattoo. Oh, the tattoo. Well, I love the tattoo. Yeah, so that was there at the CME that day as well. Mm. So I'm just, you know, so I kind of got into this. I'm just, I don't know why, but just really feeling for this person. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Julia started hitchhiking. A few cars went past, seeming to ignore her, and after a few minutes, a vehicle pulled over. The driver was the lone occupant in the car. 
The man driving was a relatively unremarkable but large person in his mid-twenties. He had dark, medium-length hair, blue eyes, and short sideburns and a square jaw. Julie thought he looked harmless enough. And according to Lee Meller's book, Cold North Killers, quote, any doubts she had were soon assuaged by the child's car seat in the back. She climbed into the front beside him and they took off through the Mississauga suburbs. Glancing around the vehicle, Julia spotted the name Henry Williams and an address on a dashboard sticker. Several minutes passed as the two made small talk when suddenly Williams cranked the wheel, cutting the vehicle across a field and toward a wooded area, end quote. Julia began to panic, and when the car slowed to a stop in a field near the Arendelle campus, as the man advanced toward her from the driver's side, Julia was able to get the door open and flung herself out of the car and into the grass, hoping to escape. As Julia was weakened by the attack and a lack of oxygen, the man was able to tie her hands behind her and tore off her shirt, shoving it hard into her mouth and down her throat, gagging her. The man then sexually assaulted the helpless 16-year-old. The more she struggled, the more he seemed to like it. According to Cold North Killers, after the man finished raping Julia, quote, he produced a knife and began stabbing her in the back, not hard at first, just enough to break the skin. It was as if the act of repeatedly penetrating her with the cold steel brought him some kind of bizarre sexual gratification, end quote. We've briefly spoken on Dark Poutine about paraphilias before. According to the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, more commonly known as the DSM-5, quote, the term, paraphilia the term paraphilia denotes any intense and persistent sexual interest other than sexual interest in genital stimulation or preparatory fondling with phenotypically normal, physically mature, consenting human partners, end quote. One of the paraphilias this man displayed by his apparent sexual enjoyment and the use of his blade is known as peakerism. Peakerism is a sadomasochistic sexual interest in penetrating the skin of another person, sometimes seriously enough to cause death. How appropriate yeah. to prick. This guy's a total prick. Total prick. In peakerism, the most frequently targeted areas of the body are breasts, buttocks, or groin. Famous peakerists from history are Albert Fish, who penetrated his own groin with hundreds of straight pins, the Red Ripper, Andre Chikatilo, and, of course, Jack the Ripper. The man stabbed Julia harder and harder, driving the knife deeper into her body, coming close to her heart. His coup de grace, or so he thought, was a blow on the girl's head with a large rock. To save her life, Julia played dead, staying still as her attacker dragged her into the bushes and attempted to conceal her under branches and some small rocks that he had thrown on top of her. She heard sirens approaching, and so did her attacker, who then took off. The first responders were on the way to an unrelated traffic accident, and the sound might have helped to save Julia's life. That's so lucky. Right? Right, like, not for the people in traffic accident, but mm -hmm. I wonder if they knew that, hey, the... The uh, hopefully it was a fender bender, yeah. Hopefully, and it's sort of the silver lining, yeah, was that that crash actually probably saved her life, yep, yeah, because Williams didn't get a chance to follow through, yeah, yeah. When Julia was sure the man was gone, she dragged herself to her feet and stumbled toward the road. There, she flagged down help and was taken to the trauma department of a nearby hospital where. 
While the doctors worked to save her life, Julia recounted the harrowing story of her attack, including the sticker with the man's name and address that she'd seen on his car's dashboard. Julia would be in the hospital for the next three weeks, recovering from a collapsed lung caused by one of the multiple stab wounds and a nasty head injury. The day after the brutal assault and attempted murder of Julia Sheldon, police went to the address that Julia had given them and arrested Henry Robert Williams, a 24-year-old bricklayer who matched the description that she had given. Williams was brought in for questioning in Julia's attack. During his arrest, officers discovered British currency on his person. His explanation about how he'd come into that money did not make any sense especially as a similar amount had been taken from Julia Sheldon by her attacker. In custody, Henry Robert Williams began talking. Not only did he admit to raping and attempting to kill the young British girl, but he also owned up to the 1973 murders of Constance Dickey and Nita Novak. He'd strangled Constance with a wire, the murder weapon that police had found with the metal detector, soon after the young woman's body was discovered. Williams described his crimes in detail and also directed investigators to the spots where he had dumped the girls, further giving credibility to his confessions. On top of the two murders of Constance and Nita and the rape and attempted murder of Julia, Henry Williams also admitted to four other brutal rapes that he had committed in the area over the past two years. He was charged with the two murders, attempted murder, and the five rapes. And we'll take a break right here. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. What are your thoughts on this story so far, Matthew? Serial killers like this. Mm-hmm. Like it's just amazing how much one person, how much damage they can cause, right? And destruction and pain. Yeah. So Constance was going to be a nurse. Right. She's 19, right? Yeah. Going to college. She's there to like move into college. Didn't even get to go to one class. Yeah. Right. And then Nita was in high school, only mm-hmm. 18 years old. And then Julie... 16, right? Yeah. And then the other women or girls who were raped. Yes. That aren't mentioned. And, you know, my bet is this guy won't take I, I bet when you tell the rest of the story, it's going to claim sort of something mental. Okay. You think he's going to plead insanity? Yeah. Is that the, is that the fancy word of saying That's the of, fancy of, of, thing. Of yeah. Something mental. <laughs> Williams, who'd grown up in Fredericton, New Brunswick, had been a troubled youth. He claimed he'd been bullied by his peers and called goofy because of his size and lack of success with some of the girls in his school who'd laughed at his ham-handed sexual advances. This guy was huge. In one photo of Williams being led into a Brampton courthouse, he's at least a whole head taller than the detective, and police officers at the time had a height requirement, so the officer would not have been a tiny man. I've seen so many times when a serial killer talks about having been bullied in school. Right. Do you think that actually has an effect on 
what they do later in life? I don't think so. No. So here's what I think. People who don't want to take responsibility for the way they behave right. will blame any number of things. I was bullied, so I decided that I was going to kill women. Women laughed at me because of my size. Mm. Maybe they were being coy and stuff, but he perceived them as being rude and cruel. Right. Maybe it wasn't their intent at all. It was his perception and his choices that drove him to be who he was and do the things he did. Yeah, I'm just wondering what sort of damage to the brain that happens when you're young. If it, it... well, I got bullied a bit. Uh, I was adopted, and some of the neighborhood kids decided that they would remind me time and time again that my parents were not my real parents, and that my uh, my uh, my real parents had given me up, Mm. you know. Kids can be cruel. Yeah, they are very cruel. Uh, However, um, I don't know. Mm. You know, I don't go murdering people saying it's because they made fun of me. Yeah, I'm just, I think maybe my question is deeper, deeper. It's more about brain development, Mm -hmm. right? Because often a lot of killers also had really shitty parents, mm-hmm. right? So I'm just... Yeah, there's I'm just, a lot of people who had just, shitty parents I'm just who trying to, I'm trying to figure out where that switch happens, you know? Uh, that, and that's why a lot of people love true crime, because yeah. we're always trying to figure out what, what, like, what makes this person want to do something so horrendous? Yeah, like, what, what is the thing that gets them there, right? Because mm-hmm. if we could pinpoint that thing, we can fix it. I think it's free will is what it is. Yeah, fucking free will. (laughs) After her husband's arrest, Karen, the mother of Henry Williams' two children, began to talk as well. Karen told investigators that on the night after the attack on Julia Sheldon, Henry did not seem upset, and she noticed nothing out of the ordinary. Henry had come home, they'd eaten dinner, and then gone to the drive-in just like nothing had happened. Karen also shared some darker information. She said that the sex life she had with her husband was sometimes brutal, confirming what Williams himself had told them, that he seemed to get off on hurting his wife, from a CP article published in the Calgary Herald. He recalled striking Karen and hurting her. When asked why he did this, he had replied, I don't know why. I asked myself the same question. I just wanted to hurt her. The more I hurt her, the more excited I got. I got more pleasure. I got more satisfaction. He said that after his marriage in 1972, he continued to look for women. It was just like something taking over my body. Something would build up inside me. That something inside me was growing. The pressure was building up and building up, end quote. Rather than kill his wife, Williams had begun searching for other victims on which to exercise his rage. This is what led to the rapes and the murders. In November of 1974, before he'd go to trial for his own crimes, the defense team for Peter Demeter called him to the stand. Demeter was accused of arranging his wife's murder after she was found deceased in the couple's garage, a case we covered in episode 56 of Dark Poutine. On the stand, Henry Williams confessed to the murders of Constance and Nita, but denied killing Christine Demeter. Williams said that he'd been at work at the time Christine had been murdered. Sure, Williams was admitting he had physically committed the crimes he had been charged with, but he was not exactly taking responsibility for them. 
He still claimed pretty much right from the beginning that he'd been taken over by some evil demonic presence inside him that had control of him and forced him to do these awful things. He contradicted himself as well, though, saying that he allowed one of his rape victims to live because she didn't put up a struggle during the sexual assault. During the trials to determine William's guilt, his defense team claimed although Henry had committed the crimes, he did not know what he was doing during their commission. And there you go. Right. He's insane. Not responsible because he has some mental deficiency or mental disease. Yeah. But we all do. That old chestnut. The, the word psychopathy or psychopath is so misused and so bandied about. We all have psychopathic traits. All of us are on the psychopathic spectrum. Every single person on the planet. There is no 0% psychopath. Really? Really. Some of us keep it under control. Well, no, it's like there are degrees of it. I guess there's... A, I'm white-knuckling it here, Mike. <laughs> there's a line that you cross. Yeah. And once once you're over that line, once you have that degree... It's done. It's done. It's like being on the spectrum of a... Anything else, really. Anything else, yeah. yeah. Are you on the spectrum of fabulous? I'm on the... No, I don't think I'm on uh, that I, I think you are. I'd give you about a nine. Give me about a nine yeah. in fabulosity? Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> There was another famous case happening at the same time in which a killer pleaded insanity due to possession. It isn't clear whether Williams and his lawyers were aware of the Butch DeFeo trial made famous in the Amityville horror book and movie and our recent episode 176 that was taking place in New York State just to the south. According to a Canadian press article in November 1975, during court proceedings leading up to Williams' trial, he was voluntarily questioned by a psychiatrist while under sodium amytal, more commonly known as truth serum. The sedation was to determine his fitness to proceed with the trial. During the session at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry in Toronto, led by court-appointed psychiatrist Dr. Robert Coulthard, Williams talked at length about the murder of Constance Dickey. He said he'd met Constance near the campus, she needed directions about how to get to her residence, and Henry saw his opportunity, offering to show the 19-year-old a shortcut. Once they were in a more secluded area in the woods, Henry turned on Constance, grabbing her and told her to take off all her clothes. Seeing she was frightened made Henry more excited. Henry raped Constance and then told her to get dressed. Then Henry grabbed her by the throat and began throttling her, he said, to cause her as much pain as he could. Manually strangling Constance excited Henry sexually again, but he claimed he was not thinking of killing her at the time, but wanted her to feel even more pain. In the taped interview, Henry spoke about the person he claimed was inside him controlling him. He said, This person wants to hurt and Henry doesn't want to hurt anybody. He's mad. No matter what it costs, he'll do it. He feels like an animal. End quote. That person is you, Henry. Yes, that person is you. Exactly. It's Henry doing it. Welcome to you, Henry. Yeah. And when I was reading this kind of stuff, we had a little bit of a conversation about it before the show, but I was thinking about addiction mm -hmm. and how I'm not going to take that drug today. I'm not going to take that drug today. That's the way I wake up. I'm not going to do that today. I'm mm -hmm. not going to take that pill or whatever it was. Right. And... As I'm walking to the bathroom 
where those pills are. I'm still thinking, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to take that today. And as I'm putting it in my hand, I'm thinking, I'm not going to take this today. I'm not going to take that today. And I'm putting it in my mouth and I'm realizing, oh, I just took that. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, it's like I was acting on some crazy compulsion, some obsession, but that doesn't make me any less responsible no, for it. was still it. you, right? It was still me that did it. Yeah. You know, even yeah. though it felt like I was going against what I knew was, was best for me. Compulsion. Right, exactly. Uh, Carl Jung talks about the shadow a lot and how we cannot directly see the shadow because it would be too terrible for us. Uh, so we will only see glimpses of it. And I think addiction is one of those glimpses of the, the shadow within us. Uh, it's a whole long blah, blah, blah. But. Uh, I don't think we even, I think it's impossible some, for somebody to even know themselves. A hundred percent? No. I don't, I don't know myself. No, I think the, that... The, the most enigmatic person I know is me. Like, I don't, I don't know myself. No. Right? Because it, I'm too in myself to know myself. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, we've talked about it before. It's like, when you're depressed and you try to think yourself well, Yeah. it's impossible because you're using the broken tool to fix the broken tool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? The good doctor determined that despite his lawyer's protestations, Williams, by then 26, was fit to stand trial. The doctor told the court that truth serum was a misleading name for sodium amytal and that patients had indeed lied to him during sessions in which the drug was administered. That said, Dr. Coulthard said he believed the majority of what Williams had said during his session was the truth. Ontarians watched the news of the heavily covered and sensational jury trial of Henry Robert Williams. On November 28, 1975, court proceedings had been recessed for a period of time and the courtroom cleared after a threat on William's life. The trial only resumed after all the attendees in the courtroom were searched by police for a weapon that did not materialize. Ultimately, the evidence won out and Henry Robert Williams was convicted of the two murders, the attempted murder and the rapes. He was sentenced to three life sentences which were to be served concurrently. Even though the Crown and defense lawyers agreed Williams was mentally ill, he could understand what he had done as he was doing it. He was diagnosed a sadistic sexual psychopath. The doctors recommended he spend no less than 20 years behind bars before being considered for parole. Williams was taken to Kingston Penitentiary where he began to serve his time. He was being held in protective custody in the psychiatric wing of the institution, essentially solitary confinement to keep him safe from other prisoners especially those willing to kill sexual predators. Williams was in the news again in January of 1976, but not for an appeal. It was something far more eyebrow-raising. At the sentencing for the murder of Constance Dickey, Henry Williams agreed to be castrated as part of his rehabilitation, a decision he'd come to after speaking to his wife and spiritual counsel. Speaking of pricks. Right. Um, <laughs> Lop that one off. Keep your penis. Stay in jail. Yeah. Um, it's amazing that his wife is still involved with him at this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can't. You don't know the complexities of relationships. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm crossing my legs here. Yeah. So when they castrate, do they take it all? No. So, so you mean the uh, twig and berries? 
they just take the in in these kind of cases they just take the berries. They're yeah. not making somebody a eunuch. They're making somebody. Oh, he just wants his berries taken so he can get to jail faster. In my opinion, I think that's correct. Yep, I think that is correct. Um, and we'll see. Perhaps uh, can we lop off his balls and keep him in jail? <laughs> well, we'll get into that. Okay. In the next few sentences here. According to a paper titled The Castration Alternative by Robert S. Brown and Richard W. Cordes, quote, Mr. Justice Haynes commented on a proposal by the accused that he be afforded the opportunity to be castrated and thereafter receive appropriate psychotherapy in a hospital so that he will no longer be dangerous to his fellow citizens and also be relieved of his aggressive sexual tendencies and sadistic impulses, end quote. Even with a documented 85% success rate in Denmark's sex criminals, this idea was still a radical idea in Canada. From a Vancouver Sun article at the time, quote, The doctors had said if he underwent castration therapy and his sexual urges and aggressiveness were reduced to a minimum, it would be cruel to make him serve his remaining term in a penitentiary. One of the doctors from Penetanguishene had estimated that after the castration, Williams would be kept for two years under observation and then as many as five to eight years for treatment of his other behavioral problems, end quote. It's unclear whether the procedure ever happened, thanks to privacy laws in Canada. But during a 1984 parole hearing at which Williams was denied day parole, no doctor had yet performed the surgery. Williams was willing. He and his wife and lawyers were pleading for it to happen but it hadn't at that point. According to a CP article, a corrections official stated that the castration would not happen as long as Williams was incarcerated in a federal institution, and the judge said he had no power to enforce that castration. In 1987, Williams was still not castrated and was briefly granted unescorted leaves from prison by the parole board. He'd had 12 escorted leaves in which he'd been out, but with a guard each time. Savka Novak, Nita's mother, said she feared Williams returned to society every day. Only days later, after protests from the families of the victims, the parole board reversed their decision and decided against unescorted leave for Williams, who'd been eligible for parole since 1984, only nine years after his convictions, possibly due to a successful appeal of his sentence, but I was unable to find any reference to it. There were other crimes, murders committed in the area around Mississauga in the period when Williams was preying on women there. From Toronto.com, quote, Janice Montgomery, 22, who was listed as the first victim, was found near Georgetown, September of 1972. She was shot in the head. Adele Komarowski, a summer student attending McMaster University, was strangled to death in a wooded area near Brandon Hall in May of 1973. Pauline Dudley was found in an Oakville field in late August of 1973. Her cause of death was never determined. None of the other three murders have been solved as of the recording of this podcast. Even though the murders had different MOs and there were other suspects, including a predator from the United States, when Williams was caught, there were no more murders of that sort in the area for some time. Williams' murders seemed to be crimes of opportunity. Much like Edmund Kemper, California's co-ed killer, Williams, too, used his car as a rolling lure to get young women to within his reach, picking them up as they were hitchhiking. Julia Sheldon was known to have gotten into the killer's car, as, as had Nita Novak. Contrary to today's more cautious way of thinking, 
Hitchhiking was still a common method of travel in the 70s. Brave souls still use it to get around today, although it is much less common. I used to hitchhike a lot, but around 1991 I stopped after a few rides with some sketchy folks. One of them was a gentleman who gave a lot of overly long sideways glances and his hand crept a little too close to me across the car's front bench seat. I asked to be let out a number of kilometers before my destination, paying attention to my creep spidey sense honed after my first encounter with a monster, the one I talked about in episode 10. I never hitchhiked again after that, even though by that time I'd been into martial arts for some time and could handle myself. Better safe than sorry, I thought. I only ever hitchhiked in Moscow. Oh, wow. But it was like, um, it was early 90s. Mm -hmm. And it's cultural. Um, in Moscow, you just, essentially, everybody's a taxi. Yeah. So people stand outside, they already stick your arm out. Somebody stops, you negotiate a price for them to take you somewhere. Oh, wow. So they might be like going home from work and, hey, I can make a few extra rubles and drop this guy off somewhere. Wow. But there were some interesting rides. <laughs> okay. So... Once I got in, there's this guy, he must have been 70. Oh, wow. Listening to like hardcore techno. <laughs> and I asked him about it. And it's just like there's this dichotomy of like this old dude yeah. listening to, to techno. And he's, and he's telling me like since the Soviet Union collapse, he really liked to hear all the... The stuff he was missing. All the music that yeah. was out there. Yeah. So he had no idea of like which music genres belong to whom, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But all music is for everybody. I once I did crouch down in the front of the car because he didn't have a, a guy didn't have a passenger seat. Half of them smelled like vodka, and I actually once got a ride at the snowplow. Oh wow! Yeah, there you go. Matthew's yeah. riding a snowplow. Yeah. Survivor Julia Sheldon is apparently doing well from Lee Meller's Cold North Killers, published in 2012. Intrigued by the bits and pieces of police work she had picked up during the trial, Julia joined the Ontario Provincial Police and, along with being a wife and mother, remains an active member of the force to this day. She has lectured frequently at Elmer Ontario Police College on the subject of how to survive an attack. She is adamant that, for Williams, sexual assault was secondary. The real pleasure appeared as he attempted to murder her. And that's why removing his gonads has nothing to do, right? Right. right. He was sadistic, mm -hmm. and what he got off on was the killing, not the forced rape. He talked about strangling her mm -hmm. and how he got off on that. Yeah. He talked about how he felt excited. When he was hurting. When she was feeling fearful yeah. or... Mm. Uh, she was hurting. I have to say, I'm so happy to hear. First of all, Julie didn't leave Canada and I think it's this horrible place. Mm -hmm. Not only did she survive, but she thrived. Mm -hmm. She became an OPP officer. Right. And I actually wonder if she knows my cousin who's an OPP officer. Um, and she works actually not far from Elmer as well. Oh, wow. That'd be kind of cool. That is kind of cool. But anyway, cool. that makes me happy because um, like just somebody who gets on with their life and goes beyond Does sort of that thing. situation. Yeah. And it's interesting though. I bet you she made a good cop, makes a good cop. Because when she got in that car, like what he got him caught was she noticed things. She was very aware. Mm -hmm. Right? So maybe she has a bit of a detective eye in her from the beginning. Could be. Yeah. According to a 2017 article published on cancrime.com, Henry Robert Williams was denied parole that year. 
The site claimed that parole documents showed that Williams had, quote, sexually assaulted a young girl inside a federal penitentiary in Ontario where he is serving three life sentences, end quote. As access to the document is behind a paywall, it was impossible for me to verify this claim or get any more information about this alleged crime. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 184, Monster in Mississauga, The Murders of Candace Dickey and Nita Novak. And what are your thoughts on this story, Matthew? Where does this leave you? It leaves me like all of the ones where you have this one person destroying so many lives, just sort of angry, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Angry that this sort of shit has to even happen. Yeah. Right? It's just... um, And it's like... I mean, he sexually assaulted a young girl inside a federal penitentiary in Ontario where he was serving life. How does that happen? I know. And I tried to find out, but uh, I couldn't find out. How does that happen? Yeah. It's uh, it's very bizarre. Maybe the the girl is there visiting her father or it could be someone he knew. He's in a penitentiary. Right. Jesus. It had to have been somebody there at visiting time but so, horrific so much for yeah mia culpas right yeah. i mean the psychiatrist who looked at him said that he would do it again yeah and he obviously did yeah i guess it's time for some voicemails let's listen to those and see if anybody gave us any tips and tricks on how to do things this week i don't know Yes, call us with your recipes. <laughs> call us with your recipes. Call us with your recipes. Call us your... to, to tell Mike how to work his computer because it's been acting up. Well, today. I'm going to work the computer with a bat. I know. At I, some th- point. I actually thought you were going to throw it out the window there for a second. No, it's uh, it's soon time for a new uh, iMac for dark poutine. What time is it? It's soon time. It's soon time. If you're so inclined, you can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. PTN. If you're stumped for what to chat about, uh, you can leave us a quick story, say hello, try to keep it under two minutes. Often the best ones have been written out beforehand, much like I write this stuff out. We'd love to hear from you anyway, even if it's just to say hi and tell us to go shit in our hats. So, it looks like we have... Somebody who drives truck calling in. We've had a few of those. Hey guys, my name is Brandy and I am a truck driver calling from good old Berta. And that's actually why I'm calling because I don't think I've ever heard a trucker call in to give you guys some loving. Wait, that sounded really weird. (laughs) Anyways, I wanted to thank you so much for all the entertainment you provided us. It can be really isolating out here, and having the two of you with me every Monday just makes it that much better. So just thank you. I won't tell you to to, uh, you know what in your hat, because that's just gross. So how about take care, comb your hair. Love ya. Hey, we got a horn. Keep on trucking and give us that loving brandy. That is so cool. That is cool. When, we, when you were a little kid, did you get used to do the? I like, did oh like do the arm. So they That's they awesome. and oftentimes it did not happen. However, brandy just did that for us, and it's awesome. That actually we've made had me really we've had happy. other truckers call, but we have never had a bummer before. What I would love 
is maybe an ambulance driver to call. I want a European ambulance driver to call. Yeah, or fire truck or something like that. (laughs) It would be amusing. It would be. As long as you're not doing it in a dangerous way, make sure your hand's free whilst in your vehicle. But uh, yeah. Well, it it looks like someone calling from New Jersey, this next one. Hi, guys. Mark from New Jersey calling with a quick update story. Matthew had mentioned the Ben and Jerry's factory tour recently. Well, my wife and I were up there on vacation a couple of weeks ago, and we tried to take the tour, and it, it was closed due to COVID restrictions. So, so no tour, no gift shop, and no free samples. Bummer. So then we went back to Burlington, where there's a huge Ben and Jerry's right on the pedestrian mall, huge store. So big, in fact, there's a, a Volkswagen bus inside the store painted in fluorescent colors, of course. And I wanted to get a little Chevy Garcia. The line was so long because it was such a hot day, we had to beg off. That's the way life goes. In either case, thank you very much for what you do. You know that happy, that uh, Boontown Rat song, I don't like Mondays? Well, I disagree. I love Mondays because in these parts, that's the date your tasty podcast drops. So keep up the chocolatey, praline-infused sweet work. Bye. That's well, great. there you go. I love the Jersey accent, too. Like, oh, that's great. That, that, that end of the world is kind of one of my favorite sort do of you, places. Do you know Banner Jerry? We can do an official complaint for him. I knew I know ni- neither Ben nor Jerry. Okay. Um, that would be very disappointing. Right? Think you're going to, like, do a Willy Wonka tour? Yeah. And not get any free ice cream. And you get Willy wanked. Willy wanked. <laughs> Willy wonked. <laughs> wank, wank, wonk. Yeah, exactly. Bing, bang, bong. Bing, bang, bong. Ding, dang, bang, dong. dong. Ding, dang, dong. <laughs> Bing, bang, bong. <laughs> oh, boy. Here's another one that looks like it's coming to us from Vancouver Island, just across the, wa- just across the water in Vancouver Island. Hi, guys. It's Gigi from the uh, Vancouver Island. I just want to say I was listening to the Delorme uh, affair thing, and I swear to God, it confirms that uh, my decision that to leave the Catholic Church was a great and great idea. Uh, also, Matt, uh, when you mentioned rubbers, I can't even say it. Um, I had the exact same reaction, like, what? Uh, anyhow, uh, thank you for that episode. It was it was uh, really fun to listen to, and um, yeah, uh, go have a poo poo in your hat. Thank you. Go have a poo poo. Thank you, Gigi. I can see Vancouver Island from my house, so I will wave when I get home. Tonight. Okay, yeah, go wave. Yeah. And uh, yes, we we that's our aim is to help people uh, leave their spirituality behind. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> no. No. Uh, no, it is actually not. Um, but, you know, to each his own. Uh, I'm, I'm not big on organized religion myself, but a lot of people find a lot of comfort there. So Absolutely. Yeah. When was the last time you were on Vancouver Island? Um, before the pandemic. Okay. So, yeah, gosh, probably the fall before the pandemic. You know what somebody told me yesterday? What? To call people, call companies like accountants, insurance, et cetera, on Vancouver Island. Yeah. And even if you live in Vancouver. Why? 
because you don't pay the Vancouver tax of being overpriced. Overpriced. Essentially, if you go to the interior or Vancouver Island mm-hmm. to like get services that where you can just call, it's a lot cheaper than in Vancouver. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well. I know that maybe that was a boring story, but there you go. Oh, boy. I could, it's because I was looking for an accountant yesterday. Ah. Here's one that looks like it comes from Alberta somewhere. Mike. Hope you're having a great day. Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, huge fan of true crime, bigger fan of Canadian true crime. Uh, Love all the episodes, love the effort you put in, and look forward to hearing more. Fantastic. Have a good day. Thanks. Wow, you didn't give your name, but thank you. I like that. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Oh, God. That's fantastic. The old radio cliché. That's great. But, uh, yeah, so we've had uh, quite a few good voicemails lately, and we are always sort of running behind to try and keep up. So that's good. Keep sent. And that's it for voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven darkptn We really do want to hear from you. We do. We do. We definitely do. Most of you. Uh, it's on to Patreon. Uh, looks like we have one patron this week. Yay. And it's Jacene Greenwood. And Jacene is from Edmonton, Alberta. Edmonton, good old Edmund Chuck. Edmund Chuck? Yeah, that's what Carol calls it. Edmund okay. Chuck. I'm going there. What are you going to do in Edmund Chuck? I'm going to watch the rugby. We're going to watch the rugby here in Vancouver, We're too. We're going to do that as well. I'm excited about that. We, we did that before. I still have my rugby hat. That I bought at the last Yay. one that I'm going to take with me. Yeah, so I'm going to go see my aunt and uncle who recently moved there from Ontario. Oh, there you go. Because their grandkids are there now. Your mom's side? Yep, my, my mom's sister. Who's, oh, there you go. My mom was the oldest. My aunt is actually only four years older than me. Oh, wow. So we've been kind of, in a way, kind of like cousins, even though she's my aunt, though. Yep. And like we grew up together. So I'm going to go see an, her and my uncle and do the rugby. So what does Jacene do there in Green in uh, what does Jacene do there in Edmonton, Alberta? She is um a rugby player. I've already done a rugby player. Yeah, you caught it. Ask the question again. <laughs> Hold on. So what does Jacene do there in Edmonton, Alberta? Edmonton. Edmonton, she's an oiler. She plays for the hockey team? No, she oils things. Oh, she oils things. Oh, I was hoping that she would be an Edmonton oiler, but I guess not. No, she, you know, if you have a squeaky door or something, she gets that good old WD-40 out. Wow. That's good. So it just oils things. I love WD-40. It does work really well on things. Whenever I get one, Mm -hmm. I just like go, I just put it on everything. Just all your hinges. Yep, all the hinges, handles, just even shit that doesn't need it, I put it on. Just Steve. In, just in case, right? <laughs> Steve and Justin. <laughs> um, that's it for Patreons. Uh, on to Donut Money Donors. We got one of those. And it is from Ronald Morissette. And Ronald now lives in Barhead, Alberta, but he grew up in Edmonton. And he says, my best friend was Chris Benoit. Never believed he would turn out that way. Thanks for putting on the episode. 
Mm-hmm. So you know who Chris Benoit was. I don't know if you've listened to all the episodes of Dark Poutine, but um, Chris Benoit was a wrestler, a famous wrestler, who killed his wife and, yeah. and child. Horrible. Yeah, it was terrible. But uh, thank you so much. Thanks for the donut Ron, money. Thanks, for the Ron. donut money. And interesting that Chris Benoit was your friend, but, um, you know, people think these stories aren't connected to me. I can listen to a story and it's not connected to me, but that's not the case for everybody. Mm. A, a lot of times it's not the case for us. Like <laughs> We're going to hear about that one next week. Exactly. Yep. Uh, Matthew is going to present us with a story that he's written, which I am so grateful for because that means I don't have to write a story for a week. For... Just wait to see how much fucking editing you have to do when I get you this right. <laughs> Anyway, I'm sure it'll be just fine. So thank you. Thank you so much, Ronald Thanks, Morissette. Ronald. And thank you to all our patrons, past and present, uh, Donut Money donors. We love you guys, all of you. Because of your generosity, it helps to keep the it helps to keep the show going. You could become a patron of Dark Poutine at Patreon.com/slash/DarkPoutine for a one-time donation. You can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it'd mean a lot. If you did, you can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. And don't forget to pre-order my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, via the pre-order link on the Dark Poutine website. You'll see it there on the sidebar. Order Mike's book, it says. So click there and spend the money so I can survive, perhaps... <laughs> For another year. He's a starving artist. I am, actually. Yeah. It is really, really I bought five of your books. I appreciate that. Now, uh, not knowing you're going to do audiobooks, now I have to buy five of those as well. Yeah. Things have been tight. <laughs> anyway. Tighter than what? Mm, tighter than before. Okay. <laughs> uh, speak, uh, yeah. Speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out. For show notes and other cool stuff, I updated it with the past episodes. So, yeah, I was like 10 behind. Please take time to give Dark Patine a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. We're done? We're done this episode. Love you guys. Bye. Okay, bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.